0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I to
1: pick your brain on the front. Hi, my
3: name's Jenna Johnson.
1: I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 16th. Today, the hollow promise from big tech on facial recognition, the risky return of the NBA season, and a data scientist rebels.
2: A lot of times, the presumption in Silicon Valley is that technology is race blind, or that the algorithms that they're creating and the business models that they're creating treat everyone the same. And We've really been having a well-overdue conversation in Silicon Valley over the last week about how that's not the case. I am Jeffrey Fowler. I'm a tech columnist here at The Washington Post in San Francisco. Some of the biggest tech companies, so IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, all one after the other last week said they were going to either stop selling facial recognition technology to police forces or that they had never sold it and that they were not going to sell it until there's some kind of federal law regulating it.
1: So we should point out here that Jeff Bezos, who is the CEO of Amazon, he also owns The Washington Post. But why are these companies making these big proclamations about facial recognition
2: technology and policing? Because over the last couple of weeks, America has had a giant conversation about police force, driven by the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And there's a realization that facial recognition technology brings the ability to supercharge policing. It gives police kind of a power that they've never had before to be able to surveil and follow people in all sorts of contexts where they wouldn't realize it. So in the context of these new conversations about how much power does the police have and how much should it have, the idea of of facial recognition technology finally became kind of too politically toxic for some of these big tech companies that have been, like in the case of Amazon, splashing Black Lives Matter across their homepage. And the question sort of became like, how can you both proclaim that and also be selling or allowing police forces to use this technology? One of the things that makes this conversation so difficult is we don't really know very much about it. There aren't Very many laws that require police to disclose when and how they used facial recognition technology. We don't even know how many different police forces across the U.S. have it. We know that it's in dozens of cities. We know some states, including Florida and Texas, particularly have it. We also know that some cities, about a half a dozen of them in the U.S., have actually said they think it's too dangerous and there's too many questions and concerns about it so that they've banned it, at least for now.
1: And, you know, when we've talked about facial recognition technology in the past, one of the things that have come up both in context of policing but also in other contexts is just that it often doesn't work very well, particularly when it comes to people of color and non-white faces. There are both concerns about the technology when it is working well and the fact that it gives people pretty vast powers that we're not 100% uh, in understanding of, but also that a lot of times it doesn't work that well and that it could potentially misidentify people in pretty important circumstances.
2: Yeah, there have been a number of studies, including one that the federal government itself put out last December, that showed that some of these algorithms can do a pretty bad job of identifying. The faces of black people, of Asian people, and of women. A number of groups that are, that oppose this technology have used it to point out that the technology misidentifies members of Congress who are people of color and might identify them as being criminals. So there's a big conversation. Like, should we be using this if it might lead to just misidentifying people and, you know, having the wrong people called in for questioning or even, you know, charged with crimes? So, you know, one of the points I heard from civil rights groups in the last week was, look, we know very little about how this technology can be used to effectively police, but we know a lot of reasons to be worried about how it could be misused. And some of the worries that we have about how it could be misused come from places like China and Hong Kong. I mean, even before COVID was the case, there were a lot of protesters out in Hong Kong protesting for democracy in their city, and uh, those protesters were wearing masks. In fact, because they knew that that would help stop the facial recognition technology from working as well so they could be identified by the police and the government there. These are very real concerns. They're also concerns for folks who are out protesting for Black Lives Matter right now. And that's one of the big questions that we have in the U.S. Like, are police forces using this on folks who are protesting uh, right now? We don't know the answer to that. Uh, We know that there are a couple of cities places like Austin, Texas, where police have asked citizens to come forward with photos and footage, uh, videos that they've taken of protesters. We also know that those places have access to facial recognition technology, so maybe they're using it to identify suspects or maybe they're not.
1: So the fact that you now have these big tech companies who are saying that they are putting their programs on pause that would give police access to this technology— Is that going to have an actual impact on the ability of police
2: departments to use this technology, or is it more symbolic? It changes almost nothing. And that's one of the things that really struck me after hearing these announcements last week. That, you know, these are names we know, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft. Amazon in particular has gotten a lot of attention for its facial recognition technology, which is called uh, recognition. But they're not major players in the market of selling this stuff to police forces and to governments. The bigger players in this space are are companies that you probably haven't heard of before, Uh, like one out of Japan called NEC is a really big one. And these smaller companies, none of them, I contacted a bunch of them, none of them made the the same sort of promise last week that they would stop selling their technology to police forces. In fact, most of them went ahead and defended the the technology. Uh, NEC in particular said, we think that this technology can be used to combat racism, which is kind of a leap in in, in rationalization there, given the, the questions about the accuracy of the tech. So what we're getting instead is we're getting big companies sort of uh signaling their support without it actually making a difference. And the even bigger problem on top of that is that these big companies, the place where they do have power, the place where they do make a difference in this, is that they have lobbying power in state houses, in cities, and of course, with the federal government. And We've seen their record, particularly with Microsoft, their record has been actually to oppose the efforts of civil rights groups and privacy groups that are trying to get this technology banned. In the case of Microsoft, literally the day before that their CEO put out a Black Lives Matter statement, they were fighting against 65 civil rights and privacy groups uh, in California to pass a bill that would have largely permitted police use of facial recognition technology. And that's pretty ironic. But why would
1: they do that if they're making this big public display of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and basically saying, we understand that there are problems with how this technology is being applied and we don't, or at least for now, we don't want to take part in those misapplications, then why would they be actively
2: lobbying against further regulation on this technology? We've seen this from tech companies on a variety of issues. Uh, If you ask any big tech company, they'll say, we believe there should be federal privacy law. Facebook says it believes there should be a federal privacy law. But when you dig into what they actually want that law to, to look like, it would actually be quite permissive to them and allow their existing business models and the ones that they hope to have in the future to continue to, to grow. Basically, they don't want to give up any future potential upside. And there is a lot of potential upside for Amazon's business and for Microsoft's business in selling this technology in lots of different ways, not just to police forces, but also to other parts of the government, to foreign governments. I mean, other countries like China have had no problem in bringing facial recognition to all sorts of different aspects of life. So I think what's happening is these companies are, are trying to sort of have it both ways. They want to say they stand with Black Lives Matter in the U.S., in this moment where that's what they feel you know, their customers want, but uh, not closing off any opportunities for themselves to potentially sell the technology in the future.
1: Are there other ways that they do still continue to have relationships with police departments or sell them technology?
2: Yeah, there are lots of ways that Microsoft and Amazon work with with police departments, you know, selling them cloud services and you know there's a range of government kind of functions as well, right? So it's not just local police, it could be, you know, the Department of Defense. It could be Homeland Security. You know, this is really just one very small part of the the picture. We also know that the products that they create are giant data collectors that surveil the lives of Americans in lots of different ways. And sometimes they hand over that data, um, usually with court orders, for example, like people's locations. And that's become another big part of policing as well in the United States. In fact, the case of Jesse Smollett in Chicago, Google got asked by the court to hand over like a year's worth of data about his location and his contents of his Gmail and lots of other stuff as they they worked out that case in court.
1: So for tech companies that are trying to actually make a difference in actually supporting civil rights and not just doing something symbolic, what are steps that they could be taking that would be more meaningful to people's experiences on the ground?
2: This is the number one question that I was asking every civil rights group and privacy group that I could find last week as these announcements were kind of flowing through one after the other. What they told me is they want to see big corporations support a complete moratorium on this technology, like we've seen come forward in cities like San Francisco and Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. They think it's just too dangerous right now. And at a time when we're talking about other ways that the police should be either defunded or their technology and their capabilities should be reduced, it's too dangerous to have Um, Any police forces, they argue, have access to this stuff. So that's what they want to see these tech companies do. Just say they're going to support laws that would restrict the ability of police forces anywhere in the U.S. to use this tech, which would, of course, then affect the business models of these much smaller, less well-known companies to sell this technology to.
1: What do you think that says about how tech companies are approaching these complicated issues that have to do a lot with civil rights?
2: I think most of the time when... Tech companies have conversations about complicated technologies. They're very unwilling to at least acknowledge that there's a problem. And what we got last week is three of the biggest tech companies all but saying, yeah, we've made something that's dangerous. And I think that is a significant step forward for this conversation. It's a significant win by civil rights groups to at least get the acknowledgement that there are some challenges here, so we should at least pause for a little bit selling this. I think another thing that happened last week that's significant is that typically when we talk about privacy in the United States, we tend to frame it in terms of Oh, that might be creepy. I mean, Martine, we've talked about this before, going through your old Alexa archives and how creepy that felt. Or we talk about how it might stifle free speech. And what happened last week is the Black Lives Matter movement was able to connect invasive digital surveillance technology with something much more direct, with the policing of Black and brown people in the United States. And I think that connection made it much more powerful than what the conversations on this have been like before. Jeff
1: Fowler is a tech columnist at The Post.
4: The fans here in the arena don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on.
1: On March 11th, the NBA canceled a game at the last minute after one of their players tested positive for COVID.
4: The game tonight
5: has been
1: postponed.
5: You are all safe. And take your time in leaving the arena
1: tonight. Later that night, the NBA announced that they were suspending their season. Now, the NBA is planning to resume its season at the end of July.
4: So the NBA, after kind of months of a shutdown, which began in mid-March, has decided to unveil its plans for a return to play. My name is Ben Goliver. I'm the national NBA writer for The Washington Post. They're going to take place uh, on the campus of Disney World near Orlando, Florida, at what's called the ESPN Wild World of Sports Complex. They're going to bring the top 22 teams by record, um, leaving out all the teams that really had no chance of competing. Those teams will play eight regular season games once they get through the uh, quarantine process and onto this campus to play basketball, and then they will proceed through to the playoffs. And, and hopefully their goal is to begin games on July 31st and crown a champion by mid-October.
1: So, so basically what they're trying to do here is just get to the end of the season and be able to declare a winner. And even though they have to pretty drastically change what basketball will look like, at least have a conclusion to the season.
4: The NBA has crowned a champion every single year since 1947. And so there's obviously a major symbolic weight to not having a season that goes unfinished. At the same time, there's also major financial stakes here estimates of lost revenue exceed one billion dollars if they weren't able to bring some form of a playoffs back. Obviously, it's the time of year when the most people are watching and you're getting the most television revenue in. The NBA realizes also that it's probably going to be unlikely, even going forward into next season, that they're going to be able to have fans in attendance. So the idea was how can they recoup some of this television revenue, essentially turn their sport into a made-for-TV event where they would be able to um, you know, at least uh, get the cash registers going on that side, uh, while also trying to maintain a safe playing environment for players.
1: So now that there is going to be this kind of modified reopening for the NBA, you said that all these games are going to be taking place at basically an ESPN complex at Disney World. Like, what, what is that all about? And why did they pick this idea of having everybody play in this one place in Orlando?
4: Well, the idea of the single site came about because, as we all know, travel risk just increases uh, everyone's you know potential for exposure. So if you just eliminate all the travel and you're able to host games at basically the same venue uh, or similar venues nearby, you do significantly reduce the risk. What you can also do is sort of create a bubble or what the NBA is calling a campus. In other words, you can lock down the players uh, inside, limit their contact to the outside world, and also limit outsiders coming into the bubble, and that should significantly reduce the possible exposure. Remember, we're talking about needing to put more than a thousand people into this uh, campus environment once you add up all of the players, the coaches, trainers, uh, medical staffers, front office executives, uh, and potentially media members as well. So they needed some place that was really big. Now, this campus happens to be, I guess a good way to call it would be sprawling. Uh, they're actually going to be able to host not only the NBA, but also Major League Soccer and their you know proposed summer tournament here almost simultaneously. Uh, they've got plenty of on-site hotel accommodations, which is a big factor here. But ultimately, I think it was the relationship with Disney, uh, who happens to own ESPN, which is one of the NBA's major uh, television partners that was able to kind of seal this site as the preferred choice. Uh, the biggest questions remaining right now, though, is okay. The bubble sounds great in theory; it makes sense not to travel. But in the day-to-day life, as you're trying to unfold, you know, 80 days worth of games potentially. How safe will it really be? What are the games themselves going to look like beyond the fact that there won't be fans in attendance? And, you know, are players going to be able to stay safe and not be exposed to this virus? Because uh, you can imagine there would be another need to shut down if there was some sort of outbreak.
1: Well, that's exactly it, because a 1,000 people is less than, I don't know, 20,000 people in a stadium. But a 1,000 people is still a lot of people to be coming into contact with each other. And you have to think about the possibility that if one of them gets sick, gets their teammates sick, all of a sudden that could travel pretty fast in a closed environment. So how is testing playing into this? And are there any other preventative safety measures that that the NBA is considering right now?
4: The basic framework of the safety plan, as we know it, would be that players report to their individual teams in their markets. They would undergo sort of a quarantine period and, and testing at that point. Then they would all kind of travel basically simultaneously to Orlando, undergo another round of initial testing and screening, as well as entering into another you know quarantine period there. And then after that, they're going to be getting regular temperature checks, as I understand it, and they're going to be undergoing regular uh, testing as well. The hope that, that they have is that if one player tests positive, they would be able to continue the event going forward and just sort of have that player be isolated, you know, say for 10 days to to 2 weeks as their symptoms um, recede. They don't want to be in a situation where they have to immediately shut the whole thing down given the level of investment and time and everything else. Spread here could happen very quickly. Sometimes it takes a while to get the test results back. How many people are exposed before you understand there's a positive test? There's absolutely risk involved, and that's something that the commissioner has acknowledged to the players. Look, don't expect this to be uh, 100% safe. We can't guarantee that. Listen, it's not an ideal situation. We're, we're trying to find a way to our own normal in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of essentially a recession or worse, with 40 million unemployed and now with enormous social unrest in the country. And so as as we work through these issues, I can understand how some players may feel that it's not for them.
1: And how do players feel about this? Because as you mentioned, obviously, they stand to to gain money from being able to finish out part of their season. But at the same time, how do they feel about the safety risks of doing this? And also just the weirdness of playing games without anyone in the stands. You
4: know, it's a very complicated question. I think that the players understand that there, there won't be fans involved. We've evolved from that position. I think that uh, the league gets it that this is a long-term problem that could impact the bottom line, you know, into next season. And so something is better than nothing from that standpoint. But I think that the players' response is definitely mixed. I mean, first of all, they stand to recoup hundreds of millions of dollars in salary if they are able to play and complete the playoffs. So that's a major motivating factor for lots of players, whether they're superstars making tens of millions of dollars or role players who are making uh, substantially less than that, I think there's also a sense that you want to finish what you've started. But there has been another group uh, here over the last few days that's sort of risen up and questioned whether the timing is right for this return, whether basketball will become a distraction for the ongoing uh, social rights and and social justice protests that have been going on across the country and that have often involved NBA star players, whether it's Stephen Curry, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, On Friday, there was a call among the Players Union that included uh, the Players Union president, Chris Paul, and also Kyrie Irving, one of the vice presidents, where a number of grievances were aired about the potential impact of these playoffs. And uh, numerous players, even those players on contending teams like the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Clippers, have spoken out to kind of paint basketball as a distraction. Now, Steven Jackson, a former NBA player who was close childhood friends with George Floyd, has called on the NBA players to take a stand and not return uh, because he thinks that um, it will slow the momentum that's been building here over the last couple of weeks.
5: Now at the time, playing basketball is going to do one thing, take all the attention off the task at hand right now, what we fighting for. None of these white owners have spoken up. None None of them are taking a stand. Yeah, they might post a video when the season starts saying what we should do, but they ain't doing nothing. Playing basketball ain't going to do nothing, but make them money and take the t- attention of what we fighting for, what we marching for.
4: As of right now, the plan still seems to be on with players reporting to their teams later this month, but it could be possible that the NBA and the Players Union need to reach some sort of a compromise to address those concerns.
1: And I'm wondering the changes that they're outlining for how this tournament is going to work. What are some of the more subtle ways that players are going to have to change how they would normally play a game?
4: Right. Well, the easiest stuff would be to say, okay, you have to be isolated in a hotel room, or you you guys should walk over to the gym together and make sure you're socially distant and wearing masks and six feet apart. But once you actually get into the game... Uh, things are totally different. I mean, you're going to be coming into close contact with your opponents. You're also going to be wanting to give high fives to your teammates. A lot of guys might lick their fingers nervously before shooting free throws. Uh, During timeouts, usually you would come into a tight circle around your coach in a huddle. And these are behaviors that are habits. They're built up over the course of players' entire careers. I mean, basically their whole lives. I know playing on the amateur level, uh, you know, some of the ticks that I used to have, I think everybody could relate to that. Are they going to be able to, in a high-pressure environment, when they're in the playoffs, you know, going for a title, remember to stick to CDC guidelines or to, you know, stick to whatever the NBA's protocol is in those moments? Are we going to be seeing some independent uh, overseer say, hey, guys, you're, you're too close together in the huddle, you need to take a step back? obviously you want the games to unfold as naturally as possible if you're the league but of course you want to also present a health and safety message to all the viewers out there in terms of best practices so everything down to how close are they on the bench will they shower um, in the locker rooms afterwards or maybe they go back to the hotels uh, to take their showers uh, after games how will the press be set up in other words will there be uh, podium where they're just sitting at a table taking questions? Or will all the media be kept in a separate room and, and that way there's no exposure whatsoever? All of these are things that the NBA has to weigh and that NBA players are going to have to adapt to.
1: Ben Gulliver covers the NBA for The Post. On Monday night, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said that players who did not want to participate in the upcoming season's plans would not be in violation of their contracts. This
0: Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges from information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan Facebook's business resource hub has you covered learn more at facebook.com/resource that's facebook.com/resource
1: and now one more thing i was
3: asked to hide and delete data And at first, I said no. I said I was not going to do that because it was wrong. But I did it um, because he was my supervisor.
5: So Rebecca Jones was the Geographic Information Systems Manager for Florida's health department. And what that means is that when the coronavirus outbreak started, she was the person in charge of running the state's dashboard that showed these statistics about how it was spreading. My name is Marissa Ayati, and I'm a national breaking news reporter for The Washington Post.
3: Well, this was in the period where the state was looking to enter phase one. But what I was asked to do the week before wasn't just, you know, hide this so nobody can see it. It was change these numbers in here so that we can publish it and it says what we wanted to say
5: she says that in may she was taken off the dashboard because she objected to certain things that other people in the department were asking her to do and sometimes just refused to comply with them altogether and so they simply
3: removed me out of you know their way
5: so after Rebecca Jones was fired, she decided to make a dashboard of her own that presented the information about the coronavirus the way that she thought it should have been presented in the first place. So she says she's still using the Florida Department of Health's
3: data. I know that data better than anybody. I'm going to show it in the way that actually puts it in context It looks at first glance very much
5: like Florida's official one. It has the number of positive cases and the number of deaths, but it also has some additional information like maps of testing sites and community resources, Um, and some of her numbers are a little bit different from Florida's official numbers.
3: Uh, Specifically, they didn't want anybody to see non-resident case or death information They didn't want anybody to see the testing or diagnosis date for positive people. So there are a variety of different dates that we provided.
5: When Jones was first fired and she started getting attention from news organizations, a spokeswoman for Governor Ron DeSantis said that Jones had essentially been repeatedly insubordinate while working at the department and that that's why she was fired.
4: What she was doing was she was putting data on the portal which the scientists didn't believe was valid data. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation...
5: Since news of her new dashboard came out, there's been a lot of talk about Jones as a rebel, that she is pushing back on the Department of Health for not letting her present the information the way that she thought it needed to be presented, and that she's trying to prove a point
3: this is information that should be public and I hope if anything it's a nudge to say look we need there's a lot of data that I don't have that they don't publish that I think should be published and I think it's more of an opportunity to be like look this is kind of what you guys should be doing and be modeling after. Um, And you should work to improve this because you're really the authorities.
5: Joan says that she didn't make her own site out of revenge or spite, that she wanted to get back to what her purpose was to begin with, which was to help people.
1: Marissa Ayati is a breaking news reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The Post Reports Facebook group now has almost a 1,000 members. If you join, you can talk to me, you can talk to our producers, and you can talk to other listeners of the show about the stories that you've been thinking about and the news that you're interested in. Join at facebook.com slash groups slash Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This
0: Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with